0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta,
1: Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And I'm delighted to have on today's show, uh, John Scott Wright and John Patton, J.P., at Access Point Financial, CEO and CFO, um, and really exciting firm. They're on the Inc. 500 list as number 17. And so we're going to get some really great trends on hotel hotel finance and finance in general from um, these two very esteemed gentlemen. So I'll start the show off by asking, John, if you would just tell us a little bit about Access Point Financial and what you do and how you play in the world of hotel finance.
0: Yes, thank you. Well, we an organization whose roots are traced back to my going to work in the mid-80s at Holiday Inn Worldwide in their in-house finance company. Kimmins Wilson, the founder of Holiday Inns, developed an in-house finance business that was uh, called General Innkeepers Acceptance Corporation. Uh, It was mimicked after GMAC, uh, GMAC Commercial Mortgage, uh, the GMAC in the car side of the business, if you will, a sign-and-drive type financing model, Mr. Wilson deployed that same model into the real estate uh, franchising industry that he developed at Holiday Inn Worldwide. And at the time, we owned Hampton & Embassy Suites, Homewood Suites, Harris Hotels and Casinos in the mid-80s. And that in-house finance company, I ended up uh, being the managing director of that. And certainly, it was a very fortuitous timing for me in the development of my career and educational experience, having the opportunity to be alongside the first generation of hotel owners. And those uh, gentlemen at the time were in their 60s and 70s, to give you some perspective, and had been the first developers of Holiday and Hotels. And then their family members, the second generation of those families, uh, became also uh, franchise owners, of course, and passed down into the family. And that became Marriott and Hilton. Starwood ownership as well. So diversified uh, investors that I was... At the right place at the right time to be able to co with those people and then later uh, emerge and start a business for General Motors. And, and we had a very good run at GM from the mid-90s uh, up through 2005 when GM became illiquid. And then our company has been able to thrive even in good times or bad because we have an assortment of financial products that operate within the capital stack that have kept us uh, somewhat insulated from the bad economies. And so it's just been uh, a very strong executive team that we have uh, paired up alongside some very good disciplines that have been employed over time and through the years and primarily our very strong client base, a recurring client base that comes to us across all hotel brands uh, to have us service their financial needs in the hospitality space. We were fortunate enough because today, and we recapitalized in 2011, our private equity group suggested that we enter into Uh, the Inc. 500 uh, ranking to provide somewhat of an unfiltered view of how we would compare against other privately owned companies is how Inc. 500 ranks that in a three-year trending analysis. So we felt very fortunate and blessed, obviously very honored uh, as an executive team and as our private equity group. was very happy to see us come in at number 17 uh, this past year. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And so, JP, for, for you, you specialize in a middle market properties, right? So kind of that, I think, what, $25 million would be your kind of upper limit for deals? Correct. That's the high point. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about some of the emerging trends that are happening in the hotel industry and hotel finance that you think would be of interest to, to middle, market, middle market players.
0: In today's economy, I think that everyone has certainly enjoyed a very robust turn the last three years or so, depending on the industry that you serve. But by large part, it is a very good run coming out of this uh, train wreck economy that we found ourselves in and that companies such as ourselves are erring on the more conservative side now, right? somewhat holding their breath and making sure that they have properly reserved cash in the bank for uh, non-recurring expenses that may pop up and playing it a bit safe now and close to the vest. But uh, clearly, it's been a good time uh, for those of us in the hotel industry and specifically in the finance space. We've just executed securitizations that were both asset-based and commercial mortgage-based, single-A rated securitizations that were standalone and one-of-a-kind First of a kind, if you will, execution into the capital markets with some of those mm-hmm. aforementioned banks. That's always the litmus test of the success of our industry and to anything that is good for hospitality is representing the overall view of the economy in general. And so uh, uh, time's been good, but the, as coming into this political uncertainty and the election year that we're in, we find ourselves in and some certainly some other disruptive things that are happening in and around us globally cautiously optimistic, I would say.
1: Yeah. John, I, I have a couple specific questions for uh, JP. So JP, one of the things we've seen is some, some consolidation um, in the hotel market. And so I'm wondering how is that affecting your business and what are you seeing in terms of it affecting like prices for financing and things and and, you know, the typical things that happen in consolidation where there's pressures on various aspects of the market.
2: Well, you're, you're probably talking about the, um, the Starwood-Marriott Mar- uh, merger that's, that's uh, underway. That really won't affect us. We're, like, like you said, we're the middle market lender. Uh, we cater to the business traveler, the extended stay, uh, limited service type properties. Mm. So those properties are well-established. The Marriott Courtyards, the Hamptons, uh, the Holiday Inn Expresses, those are doing well. Those, those will, will continue that's our bread and butter. The rehabilitation of those over time, acquisitions by our by our current borrowers of, of additional properties in that market. We're we're in tuned We're in tuned with Marriott, also Starwood. We we attend all of their conferences. We're on the um, the owner association uh, boards. We're step by st- we're step in step with what they're doing. It, it should not affect. It should not affect our business. Yeah, you know, there may be some overlap with those products in certain markets, mm-hmm. but we'll see. How,
1: we'll have to see how that weeds out. Mm-hmm. And you mainly deal with franchises, right? That's correct. And so, to what extent—and this is just in terms of industry structure—are those properties that are likely to be affected by the merger mainly corporate-owned properties?
2: Well, they're they're larger properties. A lot of the you know the larger uh, Marriotts, Starwoods, those are all
1: primarily re owned so tell us a little bit about emerging brands like Airbnb and how those are affecting your business or the hotel finance or hotel industry in general.
2: Yeah, certain types of consumers have accepted Airbnb as an alternative to the traditional hotel room. Airbnb is primarily used by consumers that are seeking a lower cost alternative to a hotel. Business travelers are really not the typical Airbnb user. The business traveler, he's he's looking for something consistent after a long day of traveling or, or, or work on the road. He's, he's looking to go back to something that he knows, something that's established. That's really not um, something that uh, the business traveler would would use. Airbnb is quite successful in certain markets and it's being used by certain aspects of the market. We're in tune with the franchisors and, and they're very cognizant of the impact that Airbnb is having on their business. It's hard to gauge the impact from a statistical standpoint. It's hard to gauge the impact that it's having, but they are aware of it. The franchisors are aware of it. They're
1: improving their products to compete with it. Great. So one of the things you mentioned up front, John, was that coming out of the recession, you and your team have been able to adjust. And so I'm very interested, both your perspective, John, and then JP, on the finance side how did you, in terms of just the sheer dealing with the contraction in the market, the changes on the balance sheet, people not being able to to service their debt, how did you negotiate the past, let's say, eight years?
0: I can talk for a while, you know that, but I, this is <laughs> a, uh, I'll let JP handle the component of our leverage partners and how they bring additional debt to the table for us to leverage up our return on equity. but. First, I would say that we found ourselves in 2008. If we do a uh, playback real quick, it's a bad dream. (laughs) (laughs) For a lot of us. Yeah, of 2008, uh, we effectively stopped lending. All indicators were, you know, there was trouble, obviously, just around the corner, not on the horizon. It was upon us. And we stopped our lending at that point. We had effectively $2 billion of loans that were on our books at the time over the past 25 years we've originated or asset managed uh, a little over 7 billion dollars to give you some perspective on our uh, portfolio and our activity 7 billion dollars with an average loan of 5 million you know certainly that's middle market representation with again a high of 25 million for most of our debt uh, approvals and as little as uh, $20,000. Somebody needs to call and, and replace some TVs, everything in between. We provide a line of credit. But in 2008, we stopped making loans. We had a $2 billion portfolio. We had a leverage partner that was a local consortium of banks that the FDIC decided uh, in their infinite wisdom to close. Uh, that was very unfortunate, but our company remained open and operating.
2: Mm.
0: When that bank was closed and. May of 2009, we continued on through 2011 with our team intact and roughly 35 people here that are based in Atlanta. We were able to weather that storm and fortunately have our portfolio acquired by Blackstone. That was in 2011. They paid in the 80s as far as uh, 82 cents on the dollar. For that size of portfolio, was the highest price paid for any FDIC liquidated portfolio in their history, uh, and it was a hotel asset uh, portfolio, which spoke volumes to the disciplines and the very strong skill levels of our underwriting team and our management. You know, from the CFO's office to through our treasury group, and we've not had more than. One half of 1% of bad debt, when I reference that $7 billion of mm. global originations we've made or serviced over the years, and that's really unheard of, people scratch their head. And, and fortunately for us, when the FDIC did take over that bank and they came to review our files, we were deemed to be in good order. We had all but one loan in our portfolio that was paying as agreed. And so for us, it was, uh, all the very difficult times, it was better than the alternative, which was having your business Shut it all together, like I said, which was very unfortunate for the bank and some of the other subsidiaries. It didn't necessarily have it to happen, but that's uh, just my lowly opinion. We were able to trade our portfolio to Blackstone, as I referenced, and moved the servicing to Midland and then leverage that very good execution we had with the hotel asset portfolio to a new investment. Uh, we were fortunate enough, like I' mentioned, to have raised already debt and equity of. $200 million. And then we leveraged that with the banks, uh, You know, roughly three to one leverage with those banks that I mentioned earlier. And we've surpassed now about $2.5 billion of asset valuation of our loans that have uh, collectively been issued out the door, uh, $1.1 billion in the past three years.
1: John, just to turn the conversation a little bit, you mentioned, uh, both you and JP mentioned weathering the storm mean you know, the storm of 2008. And we always like to talk on the show a little bit about the, the team and how you work together successfully. So, JP, I'm, I'm very interested, especially because you were dealing with the, you know, you were the CFO dealing with the books directly. And John, I'm going to ask you this as well. How does a team, weather such what must have been a very stressful time and still stay as a cohesive kind of unit? I imagine it must have been very, very difficult. So yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about how a team can successfully weather the storm.
2: We're a relatively small platform. We've always been a niche uh, business player. We're about 25 people right now. That allows us to, to move with the business market as well as the credit financing markets. We, we started out years ago as primarily a content lender, a CapEx lender, meaning, meaning all the contents of a hotel, renovating uh, a hotel and financing the F and E that goes into those hotels, including HVACs, elevators and, and so on. And that was in the early two thousands. And then when the market changed and borrowers were really looking for new construction, we we offered that product. So heading heading into the late two thousands, we financed a lot of new construction. And those were all top tier franchises. And then when the recession hit, those projects were opening and because they were top tier franchises meaning the marriotts the hilton's the intercons the starwoods because they were top tier franchises they were well capitalized they were able to weather the storm the business business market continued people continued to travel and like i said earlier that's our bread and butter so that that we didn't we didn't we don't really cater to the the destination property or properties or the the convention centers or the uh, the resorts, um, those were the ones that were impacted mostly um, back during the recession. So yeah. we, we weathered that yeah. storm. And then, and then from like 09 until uh, 11, there was, there was virtually no spending. So when we launched this platform, it was uh, at first to handle all the renovations that were needed because the, all, the, all the properties that were out there were becoming tired and needed needed to be renovated, all the contents needed to be replaced. Mm -hmm. So that's how we started. So we've been able to evolve as the market evolves.
0: Well, that was more on the uh, pure business side of that economy that was a circus on the professional side, as you touched on stress. Right. Well, there was plenty of that to go around for everyone. You know that, no matter what industry you were in or out of at the time, because certainly there were more people out of work at every, turn in the conversation that there were finding new employment. <clears throat> and so in May of 09 when I received the call, the fateful call, if you will, from the FDIC asking me to come in and meet with them at uh, across town at, at a bank where it was our back office for capital, HR, legal, outsourcing, and a very vibrant company, and unfortunately closed, I was giving the information that the bank had closed, that our... Our division was open and operating as usual, and, of course, there was, could be nothing further than the truth or as the perception as usual. It was very unusual, but it's better than the alternative. Having your company closed out from underneath you at the middle of the night, certainly not something I had been in a training scenario forever, but I was able to go back to our team and deliver the news that we were open, we were operating. and The FDIC had certain of us sign documents, of course, that they could monitor any and everything of our actions and day-to-day business dealings, either on phone taps or sitting in our office. So,
1: Wow, so they actually uh, tapped your phone?
0: Yeah, that you would allow that to occur, and that's part of any FDIC closure, That uh, in case there's an investigation underway for some reason or another. Fortunately, there was not any criminal activity that was surfaced in any banks that were closed that we were affiliated with, and that was good news, but we stayed open like I said before, unscathed as far as the optics and the resume of your company.
1: Right. So, John, one question I wanted to ask, um, which is slightly different, I was trying to get at a different angle on the question around weathering the storm. I'm interested for both you and JP, like how you kept from like, getting at each other's throats, you know, if you're going through this event where the FDIC shows up and says, you know, we're going to tap your phones or, you know, basically you go through this process that then results in you having to sell off, you know, your entire portfolio. And I imagine that wasn't just like you call Blackstone and they showed up and they paid you, you know, 80 cents on the dollar. I mean, you had to go through this entire process of shopping it, et cetera. How did you maintain, you know, yeah, like I said, to keep from from killing each other?
0: We passed notes through an intermediary.
1: <laughs>
0: no, no, well, actually, that would have been the FDIC as the intermediary. But, no, you're right. The, the process itself was arduous. And fortunately, uh, JP there, Mr. Patton, was very well regarded through the process and was actually uh, called upon by the FDIC to help reconcile some other needs that they had throughout the parent organization all the way down through our division, which had become a primary driver of revenue and bottom line, and certainly return on equity within that particular balance sheet. The process you talked about selling the portfolio is at the very outset of the closure of our parent company, not us, I'll say again. Um, We had an offer from a very well-known and highly regarded Wall Street private equity firm for a premium on the business to pay a premium on that $2 billion and to take the employees with it to run the business. And um, unfortunately, the government didn't really operate in that type of a sense of urgency model, if you will, and instead wanted to take a step back for two years and review their options. And then eventually became very happy with that Blackstone buy, but it was about 20 points less than the original premium that was offered. So on $2 billion, that would equate for us taxpayers with about a $400 million leakage that occurred over two years, which you know, is is peanuts. I will give Madam Sheila Baird a great deal of credit, who was uh, Secretary of the Treasury at the time, obviously, when the funding company, part of our funding, was sourced through that consortium of banks. When I was called into that meeting, an interesting sidebar is that they had no idea that we still had 43 loans that were in a construction phase of financing and that all of the equity in our loans is required to go in first to the project. And so across the U.S., 43 projects were underway. They were 85 percent complete. And the first word when I called that to the attention of the management on the side of the FDIC was they, they weren't aware of that. I will give them credit because they very quickly uh, turned the spotlight on that and said, we'll, we'll just shutter and we'll not fund them. Uh, That was going to create an economic tsunami, and especially for our reputation as a lender in that space. But it was going to harm forever, impair several people uh, personally, professionally, and their net worth. The local economies would have a 85% built hotel, not half built, but almost finished. But we needed $150 million approved, as was in our business model before they closed that bank, to fund out those hotels. And Sheila Baird, Ah, uh, Madam Secretary, saw fit to take a white paper that we developed in concert with the FDIC uh, local uh, contractors on site, and we're able to get that approved through the FDIC Board of Directors, which is uh, comprised of heads of other governmental arms, the OCC, the SEC, and uh, not the football conference, but <laughs> those heads of those governmental agencies came together and approved an emergency funding that had not been seen since the savings and loan crisis mm. and we were able to fund out uh, 41 of those 43 hotels it was a great success story in a point in time that was really a disaster but and people gnashing their teeth you know at, at a lot of folks and up and down the hall at our offices, I don't. I think Mr. Patton probably hid very well his gnashing many teeth for me. But we, you know, it's it's no different than your home life. If people travel in their home life, and you're accustomed to somebody being out on the road for two or three days a week, you have a certain culture, a certain pattern of expectations, and how your day in and day out will will perform. Well, all of a sudden, those people that were on the road, myself included, were now sitting at a desk all day every day, and Mr. Patton, who stays back at the office for the most part. Uh, 80, 85 percent of the time to keep the operations uh, with green light was uh, uh, probably inhibited a bit with me staying put there in the office with him alongside and uh, told me to move down the hall a few offices. So we were able to to stay civil with each other that way.
1: All right. So good fences make good neighbors. JP, tell me a little bit about your perspective on how how you how you stayed sane through that period.
2: Well, we all bring different things to the table. You know, John's the business promotion uh, marketing guy. He has has great relationships with the franchisors. I'm the I'm the financial guy, the inside guy. Dillip, John mentioned Dillip. Dillip handles a lot of the underwriting and the the closings and fundings of our loans. So we we all we all bring different things to the table. And over the last twenty years, we've always had this uh, this small niche, high profitability company with controlled growth. So we, we knew that regardless of where we go, if we stay together, we could replicate that. That profitability uh, factor is the key. We've always run a profitable operation since day one. It's continued now, even coming out of the recession.
1: And so during those difficult times, like the day when John had to come back and tell you, you know, that fateful day, tell you about the FDIC, was it simply that you were able to take a long-term view? Yeah,
2: that- you know, we've done it before. Like, like John said earlier, we start, he started up uh, a business under Intercon, started up another one under GMAC, started up another one under the Banker's Bank, now this one under PE ownership. And, and we've really started uh, back in, in 11, we started with, from scratch. We started with, with our own uh, supplies out of our own uh, credit cards. And and have grown to over a half a billion dollars in in loans outstanding. Have major credit lines and um, have a very formidable business.
1: All right. So you didn't get upset at all. You were just totally calm. No, no, like oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. Or well, it
2: wasn't. It wasn't doomsday. The it wasn't. Left the left the left. That is calm and collected.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm listening and, to and this, John. And you
2: see, he has good hair. It doesn't move. <laughs> bit, so,
1: he know, has. It, it hasn't moved. Not one hair on his head has moved no, this it, entire interview.
0: So he's very blessed with that. So I've effectively been able to uh, recruit and convince enough smart people to uh, come aboard. And as JP hit the nail on the head, a diversity of personalities, cultures, backgrounds, that with the average tenure of our staff, investors are impressed with that. We have been able to stay together at a certain point. You know even in some bad uh, relationships you know some rough and rocky roads that occur you're better you're better off staying the course than to start over and we've all been uh open-minded enough to see that and together, as he mentioned collectively, we've been uh, a better investment than people splintering off individually and mm. so that's that's come back in spades for us and that's a good point we've We spend more time together than we do our significant others or even other family members no matter what. And that's important to be able to keep that chemistry on the front burner and it's, you know, in your sleep after a period of time and it, and be able to expect, you know, the other's behavioral trends and come together. And it's a good it's a good mix. Mm-hmm. I think Joe Walsh, if I could quote Joe Walsh, <laughs> is that digressing? Uh, the history of the Eagles is, as the team knows, has been, I think, a great reference point for me to use with the team. You look at uh, individuals that were in that band. It's a great documentary on Netflix and it shows, you know, between the band members all could have been and were stars on their own account. And collectively, you know, as the group, as the band, it steps through everyone's role. And, you know, in a band is no different than corporate America. And if, uh, if you get a chance, take a look at that because it's a pretty interesting dynamic that, uh, that the band members point out that there were uh, the the alpha personalities within the band, and there were those that were just happy to get along, and that's all they wanted to do was get along, and, and didn't care to plan about uh, strategic alternatives, you know, about the top line or bottom line or their balance sheets and working with Ir- Irving Azoff, Their manager and how all that came together and didn't have it ultimately split up. It's a very fascinating. Uh, documentary, I think it's a, it's a litmus of how uh, a lot of successful companies have continued onward.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this sparks one question for me, John, and I want definitely both uh, you and JP to take this question. What's your philosophy then on having difficult conversations? Because I know that there's the chemistry and you know the team and all this history that you have but I imagine over the course of these fifteen years, you've had to have some very difficult conversations, especially during that period around 2008. So, how do you have those those difficult conversations with people?
0: Well, I would I would say, look, it's it's very unique for us, especially this vintage of Access Point. When we reorganized, it's the first time that we've built a business. Now we've we've sold a couple of times when we were building a company at General Motors for. For instance, we were building the business just to grow earnings for GM. We never had, as part of our strategic planning initiative, an exit plan to sell the business. But we were able to sell it at a profit and at a premium whenever General Motors became illiquid, unfortunately, in 2005. But we were nimble. Uh, We had our management team, as we do today, the same group. And we were able to move the business out and do it at a profit. And so those... Conversations, I've always said, is candor is everything, and that's nothing new. That's nothing profound. But as I say at my household or at the office, collectively, we can solve for surprises. Things are going to happen day in and day out. There's going to be mistakes. And I've said I've made the most mistakes. I've made the most decisions. There's going to be mistakes. But if we surface those and recognize those together, we'll overcome them because it's a talented group of people. Again, whether it's at your household or it's your office, but if people sit on those surprises or those unexpected happenstances and don't pool the resources of the organization collectively, then after a while it becomes a secret. That becomes a lie. And to your team, to your partners, to your your family members, if you're not surfacing relevant events that must be overcome collectively, you can do that. But if you hover and stay in your own silo again with that information that should be shared and try to resolve something on your own because you've made a mistake or something's happened that you think you're going to have to fall on the sword go ahead and fall on that sword but do it with the group and everyone can come together to solve for that situation but you don't let those issues become insurmountable because they become secrets because they can become lies and so everyone has to be able to look at each other across the table and say do i know what you know mm. there should be no surprises there should there, there should be no secrets I should say there's always going to be surprises every day and things that you don't account for when you get called into an office and say your partners have been closed and everyone's been told to come go home but you can stay your company stays open and operating that's something that you uh, you're, you''ve not been trained for I wasn't but you get back to your team you're candid with integrity and you share that information as managing member and the CEO of this organization you know there's certain things that you don't want to distract. And that's in your best judgment, day in and day out, that would be a distraction to the group or the team. But certainly with your partners, your investors, you have total transparency. And just like our Inc. 500 representation, you know, we opened ourselves up for an audit, a complete scrubbing of our books, P&L and balance sheets. And you just have to be able to operate that way, especially in a financial services company. And be candid with your staff, and similar to the way we communicate here. Uh, you know, annual reviews, uh, in my mind, were a thing of the past years ago. It should not be that you wait for an annual review. Our folks here, and myself included, have day in and day out open lines of communication. And so if there's something that has to be fixed or you are seeking concurrence for issues or problems or there's a breakdown uh, personally or professionally, that you resolve it on the spot. You don't wait for a month or a quarter or certainly a year to go by to, to deal with it.
1: Right, and so JP, I know that as CFO, you've you've obviously had to have some difficult conversations as well. What what's your philosophy on having those tough conversations? Like I said earlier, because because we all play different roles, we're all
2: on the same page as far as the direction of the company, and that the difficult conversations have to do with like like uh, strategic direction for the business. Like I said, we all know what the end end play is. We all know. Uh, we're trying to increase the value of the enterprise. So, so the team is always moving in the same direction. The difficult, difficult conversations have to do with um, how we move forward, financing, capital raise. You know, what's the next step? It, it, they're really external type questions. They're not really internal questions.
1: Hmm. And so, how do you? I, I'm I'm a strategist by by profession, so I love the word strategy. How do you go about resolving those, strate- those differences on uh, of opinion on strategy and moving forward? How do you do it?
0: Well, we- well you have a committee head, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that's me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Now, what I was pointing to earlier was we've always had an HR, in-house HR department down the hall, right? Whether it was General Motors, Holiday Inns, uh, especially finance group, we had a head of HR and a staff of human resources directors, and... These days we take all that in house amongst ourselves and uh, JP may have a a better answer than I do, but we we have meetings when we need to have a meeting. We don't pre pre plan meetings for the sake of having a meeting, but we we do have certain structured, you know, recurring objective meetings, but just for the sake of getting together collectively. That's not our culture, just to plan something three months in advance, but we we do manage and tackle those issues head on. We employ an HR consultant and outside legal uh, counsel that has been with us for years that I use to benchmark and survey our peer group uh, finance companies and outside uh, enterprises that are not finance related to make sure that we are on top of, uh, for our employees and our executive team, any compensation or other Perks that, you know, types of perks that are allowed into uh, the operating environment to make sure that we're taking care of our our staff at the highest levels possible of what would be current market conditions, and never take never take a view that the economy is down, and so therefore we'll take advantage of that or you know, haircut our overhead with reductions of salaries or other perks. Rather, I personally over time have used that to uh, display very clearly the reinvestment we make into our team at the highest levels possible and not uh, dilute that corporate culture or income more specifically.
1: Yeah. And so do you then have a strategic planning process that you do every year or you don't have a formal strategic planning process? JP? Well, we we do a budget. We have a a, a budget
2: that uh, really sets the direction on a, on a short term basis, and then we also uh, have a, a longer term longer term forecast. And a lot of that again is driven by capital and our capital needs, and that really uh, directs us into some of our products uh, that we're able to finance. So so we're we're moving maybe with a three year view of where where the business is going to go. We've all been in uh, industry, the finance industry for. For a long period of time, hospitality and finance, really, we we just want to continue to grow, um, expand our product base, diversify
1: into other products as the markets allow. So one question for you, John, on that point, it sounds to me like you you don't actually have like a formal five year business or strategic plan for Access Point Financial.
0: Well, we do. So certainly let's be clear on that. I'm if glad to hear that because I was going to be
1: like in, um, I was like, "Oh my of goodness, course, really?"
0: Of we do. <laughs> now, what we have are contingency plans, if you will, that are footnoted because as as you know in your history with strategic planning and those initiatives, we have to have footnotes built in at certain points of what in a timeline of our growth cycle would footnote to a potential exit based on all of the market knowns and unknowns, and uh, you know that's where at times, even though I am fortunately provided with the autonomy and the authority to run the business day-to-day, the private equity partners of ours own the vast majority of the company. I may be Mm. the largest individual shareholder and the managing member, but at the end of the day, uh, they would suggest when and who we might sell to, and and they've been tremendous partners. Uh, They would look to us and want us to be, of course, pleased with what might be the future culture that we may sell into or the, uh, clearly the economics of execution of that transaction. But that's where, going back to those difficult conversations that you referenced, that's, you, know, you have to be prepared for a number of different scenarios. And so that's where we stay very fluid and very candid with each other back and forth and asking the question, do I know what you know? And as as you would know, <laughs> with your history in hosting this show, It's incumbent upon me and our team, of course, and our operation here to be able to provide very fluid and transparent information to our investor base, not necessarily uh, reciprocating back to us in the same manner. They, They oversee billions and billions of dollars of private equity they've deployed in roughly currently 35 businesses, plus or minus. And so we are part of that portfolio, right? And so they may make a decision one day they want to exit at a certain price point. And give us a call, and, uh, and that's a much better call to get to the table, certainly, than what we experienced in uh, 2009 with the FDIC. It's more of a proactive and positive accretive execution than it is where you're winding down a business.
1: Last question for you, John and, and JP. Tell us a little bit about what you expect for the, the future of Access Point Financial. You're 17 on the Inc. 500 list. Um, there's really only 16 more to go. <laughs> and so, you know, what, what do you anticipate for the future? What are you looking forward to?
0: JP, why don't you jump in? I'll close it out.
2: Okay, I'll start out from a financial standpoint. With, with our success and with our size, that's, that's giving us access to credit from larger financial institutions, um, more flexibility with credit. The players are going to be large international type banks that are going to provide us credit. That'll, that will allow us to grow even uh, even larger and into into additional products it's it's tough to do that out of the out of the blocks we started out small and now we're getting into a, a point where um, where we're a proven business we're getting access like I said
1: to the capital markets great and John
0: yeah I would, that Inc 500 keeps uh, coming back and it's a good reference point our private equity partners did make a phone call. And as I mentioned earlier, they've been really fantastic to partner with. And I, I get a call maybe once a week or two just to check in. But they referenced a year or so ago, why, why don't you go ahead and throw your hat in the ring with your metrics uh, and all of your financial reporting to, into ink And let's just use that as they do with some of their other companies as a casual approach to monitoring or metering and, and testing uh, against other privately owned companies, because that is the the uh, ranking is of based on privately owned companies and a three-year growth trend. And so it gives you an unfettered, even if you're hiring outside consultants, so sometimes you have some, some filtration issues of the results. But here, it's very much, uh, in my mind, unbiased reporting back. We came in, I think, as the number two financial services company out, you know, of the pink 500. So we were extremely pleased when you ask about the outlook, you're extremely pleased with the trending of the last three years that we were able to report and start off not having a clue where we would come in with these rankings. So you're putting yourself out on a ledge, really, that you had better come in at at an impressive (laughs) ranking if your partners are going to ask that you submit in the first place to the process. And so you receive an email that says you've made the Inc. 5,000. And about a week later, you get another one that says you have now have been ranked inside the Inc. 500 and then the Inc. 50, and it it kept going there for a while, almost as as a beauty pageant, if you will. To come in at that ranking was uh, was a very pleasant surprise for me, and it was a testament to the team. We were, I think, the number one Atlanta-based or metro area company uh, that was ranked. And so we took a great deal of pride in that. As as JP mentioned earlier, look, we started off this business in the truest of entrepreneurial spirit Buying the furniture with our credit cards, Uh, I had to put the renewal of our (laughs) insurance when we left uh, the form formality of our prior existence. I had to put a six figure cost without having a formal partner yet to renew our insurance, our D&O and our E&O coverage. Get Heinz comfortable enough with giving us some space to move that furniture into until we had our counterparty partner in closing the uh, first 50 million of equity. Uh, that was injected into the company, and that is in this truest sense, you know, a ground up construction of a business that we've been able to take a great sense of pride. And we've done it before, but we've been in the confines of another organization. And so a lot of these rankings and ink and otherwise, you have to be an organic non-division business to come in and in the purest sense of entrepreneurship. And there's a lot of moments, as you know, uh, where you are on the ledge together and there's uh, tension and there's uh, coming out of that FDIC experience where you had tension day in and day out of just the unknowns because you weren't necessarily in control, but now you have tensions because you're in complete control and every decision is just critical to life or death of a company, especially when you're launching the business. And uh, so we were very fortunate to come out of it with that affirmation, the validation of Inc. and then some other Atlanta-based uh, you know, the Atlanta Business Chronicle has a ranking as well that we came in the top 10, mm. and some other outside validations, which is was nice for us. We didn't throw our hat in the ring in, in some of the equity raise. I think we would have been top of the list of, of Atlanta-based companies from an equity raise standpoint now, like I mentioned, the $200 million and going. Uh, and so we've just been very blessed, and it's all about trust in your team, the integrity of the team, and having that reputation, as you know for your investors to come to the table in the first place and having an impeccable track record because you have to have in in our private equity vernacular i was at the closing table and they said you know we invest in folks that have done it for about twenty five or thirty years and not the thirty-year-old that thinks he's it (laughs) And no disrespect to the 30 year olds out there but I, i loved and valued that statement that that us old guys still could point to a resume of sticking with what you've been doing over the years and keeping your head down, working hard. Because as you know, in these days and times, there's uh, you know people that are looking for the turn of their investment to become millionaires or billionaires in, in short order. And I'd say that's kind of a video-aged way of thinking of things that people think they've got 10 lives they can blow up and reset their system. Those of us that have been around a bit longer know that your reputation is everything, integrity is everything. And you've got to have an unblemished track record, you know, to be able to garner new investment to start a business. And so we were very pleased and very blessed, again, to be able to have the team together, stay together and, uh, and continue on together. So again, we appreciate your time and having us today on your show.
1: Wonderful. And if listeners want to get in touch with you to hear more about anything they've heard, how can they do that?
0: Well, we can, our website is accesspointfinancial.com.
1: Great. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Well, thank you again for having us. and We're very appreciative and honored that you you gave us that invitation. So thanks, and thank you for listening in.
1: This show is brought to you by
0: Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at
2: AnonaEnterprises.com.